0: Whether you experience freedom or bondage in your Christian life will in large part be determined by how well you understand the decision that was made by the Jerusalem Council nearly 2,000 years ago. That's what we want to talk about today. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. It's not really a difficult text. We'll explain it. The challenge is in understanding the implications. What difference does it make to our lives today? And we'll spend quite a bit of time on that. Paul has been defending his gospel of grace, saying that he received this gospel of grace directly from the mouth of Jesus himself. He's been gone now for 14 years proclaiming this gospel to the Gentiles, and now he's going to come to Jerusalem to meet with the Jerusalem Council to see whether or not it aligns with what the apostles heard directly out of the mouth of Jesus himself. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. So 14 years, he's coming to Jerusalem. He brings with him Barnabas, who would uh, have been considered a very respectful, uh, respected a Jewish Christian, and he brings with him Titus, who would have been an uncircumcised uh, Gentile, an uncircumcised Greek. In a sense, the argument is around whether or not Titus is saved. And so Titus comes basically as exhibit A. Verse 2, It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So he tells us why he's going because of a revelation. God has said, go. And he is submitting his gospel of grace to those of reputation. Now we find out later in the text, primarily that's Peter, James, and John. They would have been revered because they were apostles. They received the message and teaching directly from Jesus himself. Now he shares a concern, and so he has a pre-meeting, so to speak. And his concern is that it's possible that everything he's done in the name of the gospel may be in vain. Now what he's not saying is that he has some concerns that he has the message wrong. That would be contrary to everything he's said so far. What he is concerned about is the possibility that the Judaizers have gotten to the apostles and been affected by them. It's entirely possible that when the Judaizers were causing trouble up north, that they were even saying, the apostles agree with us. They're on our side. And so... Uh, Paul doesn't know quite what to expect. So he's starting with a pre-meeting with the apostles, Peter, James, and John, just to get a sense of where they're at. What he is saying when he talks about that he uh, might have run in vain is saying if it's true that the apostles have sided with the Judaizers, that will be devastating to the Gentiles who have believed the gospel of grace. As a matter of fact, it will devastate them, it will devastate their walk, it will devastate these churches. It's a reminder that legalism is not some little thing. It has the potential to destroy, church it is, has the potential to destroy people's lives. So Paul meets in private with the apostles, To see where they're at on all of this. Verse 3, but not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So Titus is exhibit A. He's a Greek believer who has not been circumcised. The conclusion of the pre-meeting is he doesn't have to be. He was in no way compelled to be circumcised. Salvation by grace through faith alone is the conclusion. Now, this is the first time in the book of Galatians that we've identified specifically what was the issue that Paul was dealing with. It was the issue of circumcision. In Acts uh, chapter 15, that would be the correlating text. It tells the full story of the Jerusalem council. And in verse 1, it tells us that the Judaizers were saying, you have to be circumcised to be saved. It's a very clear black and white statement. So that's the issue. So now we go back to what we've learned in Galatians. When Paul's talking about another gospel which ends up being no gospel at all, it is a gospel by which a work is added to grace. In this case, circumcision. And at that point, it becomes another gospel, which is no gospel at all. Now, it's interesting to think about the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it was a very good thing in the life of the Hebrew people. It was what God established as the sign of the covenant. In Genesis 15, 16, 17, you basically get the story that God promised to Abraham that through Abraham's descendants would come ultimately the Messiah that would bring salvation to the world. So it would come through Abraham's seed. The sign of the covenant was that this was something that only God could do. God would bring it about as a miracle. So the removal of the flesh or the foreskin was symbolic, that we're removing the flesh's ability to accomplish this, and it will have to be a miracle from God. So the whole point of circumcision was God made a promise. We can't do it. God will do it for us. And this is our statement. We believe the promise. But over time, the ritual lost its meaning, and all that remained was the ritual. And now the ritual's been turned completely on its head, where rather than being symbolic of an absence of the ability of the flesh to merit favor with God, it now has become a means of meriting favor with God, the exact opposite of what was intended. And so the discussion is around whether or not they need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Conclusion of the pre-meeting is absolutely not. Now, I think it's always helpful when you're talking theology to put a face with the theology. It's never just theory, it affects people's lives and Titus is exhibit A. Verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Very interesting language here. These were not weaker brothers. Like, for example, Paul says in Corinthians, to the legalists, I became a legalist. There's times when people simply have been uh, incorrectly taught. They're new believers, they don't understand, and you win their respect to take them into freedom. But there's other times when it's the false brethren proclaiming a message that is destructive to the gospel. And in those cases, someone needs to take a stand and say, that's just not true. So Paul describes them as false brethren. They're pretending to be Christians. He uses military language. They sneak in. They spy out their liberty, and their intent is to take us into bondage. Now, why would anyone want to do that? The answer is very simple. Legalism is always about control. It's about churches wanting to control their people. It's about preachers wanting to control people. It's about religion wanting to control people. It's about parents wanting to control their children. It's always about control. Now, often it's very well intended, but it flows out of a lack of belief that the Holy Spirit will do his job. And because I don't trust the Holy Spirit to do his job, I must do it for him, so I must control you. Otherwise, you will be out of control. That's the essence of legalism. And so Paul uses this language. They're sneaking in, and they're spying out our liberty, and they desire to bring us back into bondage, and they must be stopped. Verse 5, but we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Paul says we didn't buy into it even for an hour. They stood firm on the gospel of grace. What was at stake was the very gospel message, the truth of the gospel. Verse 6, But those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. So he's talking about the apostles, Peter, James, and John, which he'll name quickly here. And saying that at the end of the day, his allegiance is ultimately to God. In other words, if the apostles would have said the Judaizers are right, Paul would not have gone along with that. He would still have taken his stand. When he says they contributed nothing to me, he's not saying that we didn't affirm one another or encourage one another or enjoy our visit. He is saying that they added nothing to his gospel of grace. They did not add any work. It is salvation by grace Through faith alone. The message that Paul had preached for 14 years was exactly the same as they heard out of the mouth of Jesus. Perfect alignment, and they stood together on that. That's what he's saying. Verse 7 But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship, To the circumcised, meaning the Jews, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. The He he's referring to there is the Holy Spirit. If you go back and read the Acts 15, uh, version of this story, what was striking to the council was that when Paul declared a gospel of grace to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he had the Jews at Pentecost, and they realized this is the same spirit, this is the same gospel, that they are equally part of the family. And that's what he's referring to here. And recognizing the grace That had been given to me, James and Cephas, who would be Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do." So the right hand of fellowship is basically, they shook hands on it and said, hey, we got the same message, we're in this together, Peter's going to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles, but there was a reminder that the Jews, because of persecution, had been dispersed, and there were Jews in many of these Gentile locations that were struggling to survive. And the message was to Paul, even though your message is to the Gentiles, don't forget the Jews there that are struggling and help them survive. And Paul says, yeah, I'm eager to do that. I want to do that. So the text itself is not difficult to understand. Paul got a message of salvation by grace through faith from a revelation from Jesus and preached that for 14 years. The apostles got it directly out of the mouth of Jesus and had been preaching that in Judea. Now they come together and realize we're preaching the exact same message from the exact same Jesus. So it is a confirmation that Paul's gospel is indeed the gospel. What we're left with is what are the, the implications of Salvation by grace through faith alone. Now again, it is sobering to stop and think about. This council, with all the confusion, was less than 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Those that heard the message directly out of the mouth of Jesus we're still alive and preaching the gospel. If it's possible that level of confusion happened in 20 years, what is the possibility of some confusion 2,000 years later? And I would suggest the possibility is very high. Think, for example, of the issue of circumcision. What makes legalism so confusing is it seems to sound right. It sounds like, yes, that's what the Bible says. I would suggest to you I could go to almost any church in town, and if they would give me 35 minutes, I could convince at least a percentage of those people that you have to be circumcised to be saved. Simply by twisting and manipulating the Bible in such a way, it seems to be saying that. The legalists don't reject the scriptures, they just twist the scriptures. And that's what makes it so confusing. So what are the issues today? It's probably fair to say the issues aren't probably circumcision. So what is it? Well, let's start with the bigger picture and then work our way down. Last week, I mentioned churches, denominations, groups that would embrace a theology that unless you're one of them, you cannot be saved. Now, many of those denominations will say, We're all Christians. Let's all get along here. Let's have unity. But if you dig into their core doctrines, there's very clear statements. If you're not one of us, you cannot be saved. Now, Paul brought Titus as exhibit A. I'm bringing you as exhibit A. Do you understand the implications of that doctrine? In essence, it's saying that if You are not one of them. As you sit there this morning, you simply are not saved. You may have had some sort of an emotional experience. Something may have happened. But it wasn't Jesus, and it wasn't salvation. Now, in order to maintain the belief that you have to be one of us to be saved you have to add something to salvation by grace through faith. There has to be some sort of a distinctive of that group, of that church, of that denomination that is distinct to them that is required for salvation. So that clearly becomes another gospel. It has to be. So let's think of another example. Let's imagine a church that let's say, is theologically liberal. We don't typically think of those churches as being legalistic. They think of us as being legalistic, but let's think about that. They might say something like, we think the Bible's a very important book, but we don't think it's necessarily the Word of God, and there's parts that are inspired and parts that aren't inspired, and they kind of cherry-pick what they like about the Bible. They might say, at the end of the day, all roads lead to God, and what really matters is love, that we love one another. But let's think about what they just said. First of all, if all roads lead to God, then what they are embracing is that by various religious works and activity, you can merit favor with God. That's the very definition of legalism. That's all that could be. Once you take grace off the table, the only option left is legalism. So there'd be a high level of legalism, rightly defined. Second of all, this idea that all you have to do is love. So what are we talking about there? Are they talking about a feeling? No, they're talking about action, activity, which is great, very important, but is that love flowing out of a life that's been changed by Jesus, or is it a means of acceptance before God? Those are two very different things. So if I'm saying at the end of the day, all that really matters is love, then I am saying that by my works, which is my uh, expression of love, I somehow merit favor with God. That's the very definition of legalism. They are up to their eyebrows in legalism. That's all that is. But even that has some serious problems. For example, who defines love? And what love is enough? And who determines that? I mean, what if I was loving yesterday, but not so loving today? Was I saved yesterday and not today? And what about tomorrow? Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Is there anybody in the room that thinks you do that at that level every day? So does that mean none of us are saved? Does that mean salvation is beyond our grasp? Or are we lowering the standard down to a level that we can achieve? And who makes that decision? Who says that's the standard? Isn't that just arbitrary, a person-by-person thing? So how do I know today if I've loved enough? How do I gain some sense of peace, some sense of security, knowing everything's okay? And what about the days when I totally blow it? Am I then not saved? Am I not accepted? Am I an outcast? How does that work? And what what about somebody that lives in a land that isn't like it is here in the West? I mean, let's everybody love works in a culture that's pretty safe. That's pretty affluent. But what if you live somewhere in the world where everything you've cared about has been beat up, been destroyed, been stolen, been raped, or been murdered? And frankly, you don't feel much like loving. Through no fault of your own, the love has been knocked out of you. Are we saying there's no hope of salvation for those people because they can't be loving every day? What about a soldier who's been very unloving his whole life, gets wounded in battle, and right before he dies, cries out to God? Is there no hope for him because he doesn't have a chance to turn around and be loving? And what about those people that aren't loving enough? Are they condemned are they turned away? Are they damned? What happens to them? Or does just everybody get in? And if that's the case, what are the implications of that? Really, why are we here this morning? Let's just go fishing if that's the case. The, the idea of it's all about love has the same problems, whether it's this love thing or whether it's this real rigid thing. Who makes the rules? Who gave them that authority? When is enough enough? And how do you ever know? In addition, it's just flat contrary to the teaching of Scripture. So let's narrow it down a little bit farther. Okay, what in, in uh, churches might be the circumcision of our day? Yes, salvation by grace through faith plus what? What? Plus communion? Plus keeping the Sabbath? Plus dietary laws? Plus baptism? I mean, what do you want to put in there? Salvation by grace through faith alone. Ephesians says not by works. So let's take the baptism issue, because I've already had that question asked several times. Let's start with this. Is baptism a work? The New Testament is very clear. Not by works. Those that would say baptism is necessary for salvation would say it's not a work. Well, of course it's a work. What else is it? You can't just start redefining the terms. It's something you are doing to merit salvation with God. How is that not a work? Of course it's a work. The comeback would be, well, but even belief is a work. It is not a work. You're changing definitions again. By its very definition, uh, what you think and what you believe is contrary to what you do. That's what defines one as a work. Even Romans chapter 4, verse 5, distinguishes belief from works that you are justified on the basis of belief, not according to works. Couldn't be more clear. Says belief is a non-work. Now you can read passages that say things like, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. But the question is, would they have understood baptism as a means of salvation or a public declaration of that which has saved them? I would suggest baptism was so familiar to them, they would have clearly understood it's just a public proclamation of that which has brought their salvation. Where the discussion becomes more critical is around those passages that are intended to specifically define the gospel. In other words, we can pluck verses out of the New Testament all day long. You never get anywhere doing that. The question goes more to what about those passages where the intent is to define the gospel? And I would suggest to you in every single one of them there is no mention of baptism. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6 is believed to be a creed that defined the salvation creed of the New Testament church. Nothing is said of baptism. Romans is Uh, by far the most systematic unpacking of the doctrine of justification the doctrine of salvation and the critical chapters are in uh, the last part of three and four and to five where you have virtually no discussion of baptism whatsoever it doesn't even show up until chapter six and even there it's not a command it's just used to illustrate a greater theological point that he's making the very beginning of Romans 5 says, therefore, having been justified. So, everything you need for that is in chapters 3 and 4 with no discussion of baptism. The others would be Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, and Galatians 1 and 2, our passages this morning where there is virtually nothing said of baptism. It simply isn't part of the discussion. Okay, so baptism, much like circumcision, that is intended to picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, a public proclamation and identification with what was done for me for my salvation, gets turned on its head where now it has actually become a means of salvation, the exact opposite of what was intended. Okay, so let's go a little bit, uh, narrower to churches like ours, fundamentalist churches. We take great pride on the fact that everybody else is mixed up except us. We've got it figured out. We don't believe those things. Salvation by grace through faith alone. Preach it. Beat the pulpit. We've got it right. Don't we? That message is preached over and over and over again. But in many churches, sometimes spoken, most often unspoken, there is a clear culture, a clear sense that there's certain things you must do and not do in order to really be saved. So is it salvation by grace through faith alone or not? Or are there certain works, certain things that must be done or must not be done, or we must conclude you're really not saved. So let me ask you this question. Do you think it's possible that someone could be truly saved and still struggle with sin? Yeah, we're probably all going to say yes, yes. I see that person in the mirror every morning. So can a person truly be saved and still struggle with same-sex attraction? Whoa. Let me push it a little bit farther. Can a person truly be saved and still engage in a homosexual lifestyle. Whoa, now you've gone too far. Really? Can a person truly be saved and still struggle with pornography? Can a person truly be saved and still be having sex outside of marriage? Can somebody truly be saved and still struggle with materialism? Greed? Pride? Selfishness? Self-righteousness? Who decides which sins are allowable and which sins are not? And why is that? And aren't we starting to mount something on top of a gospel of grace? And we're making the arbitrary decision, who's in and who's out, based on what sin you struggle with. And who gave us the authority and the permission to say that? Now, I'd be the first one to tell you when you have a radical experience with Jesus that your life is radically changed from the inside out and God will convict you of sin. Over time, your life will change. But who determines how fast that happens and what that looks like and why are some sins acceptable 10, 15 years later and others aren't acceptable one month later? And suddenly we're adding works to the gospel of grace. To understand the implications of grace Alone are life changingly powerful. Think about it this way. Let's imagine that you are following me, you're spying on me magically through my day, and it happens to be a terrible day. I experience temptation. I cave into temptation, I sin against God, I offend God, I make a mess of things. It's a terrible day, as I have poorly represented my life as a Christian. So you follow me home. Now we're speaking metaphorically. We enter into my house. And you expect me to go into the dark room. Because after the day I've had, that's what I deserve. And it's in the dark room that I put my face in my hands and I am overwhelmed with my shame and my guilt and I'm disgusted with myself and I know that God's disgusted with me and I've blown it again and I'm a loser and I'll never measure up and I hide in the darkness and I wallow in my shame and my guilt but that's what I deserve. At least that's what you expect to see but that's not what happens. Oh, I meander through the dark room, but then I make a run for the door down the hall, and I run into the light room. And of all things, I run to Jesus and I jump up on his lap and he hugs me and I hug him and he laughs with me and he celebrates me and he accepts me and we have joy together and we dance together and we celebrate together and we love together. It's a beautiful moment and you, as the observer, are appalled. You think, certainly Jesus knows what this loser did today. He has no business acting like that in the light room. As a matter of fact, you think for me to act that way after the day I've had is nothing less than scandalous. You got it. You got it. If you're starting to get that, you're starting to get the grace thing. It is scandalous. But it's grace alone that makes me acceptable to God. Now here's what some of you are thinking, oh no, we go down this path. It's cheap grace. It's easy believism. Christians will think I can just sin all I want, be forgiven, no big deal. In order to make sure you don't continue that behavior day after day, you must be punished. You must be sentenced to the dark room. Shame. Guilt. I must be disgusted with myself. I must inflict pain on myself. I must beat myself up. I must make myself pay to make sure I don't repeat that behavior tomorrow. It's only in the dark room that I'm going to come to grips with my sin so that it doesn't repeat tomorrow. Right? Wrong. 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 This is where we get into so much trouble. On the basis of my performance, I I condemn myself to the dark room. I can't come into the light. I was naughty today. And so I stay in a room with my shame and my guilt, and I condemn myself. And I'm disgusted with myself, and I know that God is disgusted with me. And so I hide there. But that now becomes my identity. That's not now who I am. And so tomorrow, the likelihood, I'll repeat this behavior, is very high. Because I'm not in the light. I'm in the darkness. This is now my identity. And I'm going to live that way again and again and again. And this is how we get stuck in bondage and can't get out. It is when I understand the ramifications of grace alone that I flee into the presence of Jesus. Those are the moments when I need him the most. And I jump up into his lap and I'm reminded he loves me and he accepts me and he sees me through eyes of grace. I am still justified in his sight because I'm clothed with the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't see my sin and my failures. He sees who I am in Christ and he loves me and he laughs with me and he celebrates with me and he dances with me and in those moments, my soul comes back to life. In those moments, I realized, again, this is life. This is love. This is everything my soul longs for. This is what I want. This is how I want to live. This is my identity. And as I come back to life, I have become once again passionate for righteousness, passionate for obedience, passionate to live out this life. And rather than hiding in the darkness, I've been recalibrated and renewed. And I remember again what life is about. And tomorrow, there's no way I'm going down that path again because my soul has been reminded this is where life is found. And that is the way to freedom. But you only get there when you understand this is by grace alone. That's what makes grace so powerful and so amazing and so worth fighting for. Our Father, we're thankful this morning that you love us. Lord, the truth is we all have days like that. Where we just make a mess of things. And there's something within us that believes we should be punished in the dark room. Lord, help us to understand when we do that, we just stay in the dark room day after day and find ourselves in a destructive cycle of bondage. Lord, help us to understand grace means we run into the light room, we run into your presence, and our souls are made alive again. And our passion is renewed for righteousness. And there we find life to overcome sin and to walk uprightly. Lord, help us to understand this. That we might live this in Jesus' name.